Are you strung out on streaming? Did Netflix and chill turn into boring and ill? Well, fear not, neighbor. We got what you need. That's right. Your local video store is here to save the day. We got all the tapes and laser discs you never knew you wanted. That's right. And thanks to modern technology and a 56 kilobyte DSL line, we are able to make film recommendations via the information superhighway, the internet. Yes. Each month, we pick a random caller seeking help from our trained staff to find a film that meets their search criteria, such as... Horror films directed by a woman with no nudity. Killer doll movies not made by Charles Band. Even Easter-themed horror films and children with magic. We can help you find what you're looking for. Can you help me find Jesus? No, but we can find you religious films not featuring Jesus. So tune in each week and we'll help you find what it is you're looking for. Find us where all popular podcasts are found, even live recorded video from our store. Support your local video store and earn a free bag of popcorn when you sign up for a Videorama membership. Welcome Welcome to to Videorama! What is it, George? What? Windigo. 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 Tanu Leonil Mushka Lolishke. Ojibwe Tano Dahamado Glogashli. Uh, it's an old Indian myth from the north. Windigo. Mushka Ki Igilo Tanu Temlu. A man eats another's flesh. Uh, it's usually an enemy. Tanu I Udi Tanu. Dungahamu Kagi. And he, um, takes, uh, steals his strength, in essence, his spirit. And, um, and his hunger becomes craven, insatiable. And the more he eats, the more he wants to. And the more he eats, the stronger he becomes. Georgia, people don't still do that, do they? Sunday White man eats the body of Jesus Christ every Sunday. I Saw It on Linden Street, the show dedicated to the joy of finding and appreciation in cult films, exploitation oddities, beloved classics, and all points in between. I'm your host, Chris Roberts, inviting you to join us here at the Linden Street Cinema Experience Theater as we once again dig up a fun, cinematic relic from the past. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for joining us. Now, this isn't your standard film review. Rather, it's a synopsis of a film that we feel deserves to have another inspection, with some background thrown in on the actors, information on the director, and hey, if I'm doing my job right, perhaps you'll get a half-amusing story out of me. Fair be warned, while we don't cover all aspects of plot, we do discuss endings and spoilers. So, if you'd like to be surprised, please give the film a viewing before you listen to us. 
if you like us, and hey, I would hope that you do, please recommend this podcast to a friend, give us a favorable review, subscribe. This week, we are still within our month of lip-smacking fun that we have dubbed Tastes Like Chicken. That's our take on some really interesting films that cover the oh-so-fun topic of cannibalism. And this week, we go along with Antonia Bird's cult horror black comedy, 1999's Ravenous. Join us! This week's film is one that I rented when I was first in high school. It was a film that I strongly remember I wanted to watch with my friends. The problem was, none of my friends really wanted to watch it with me. So, like many things, this ended up being a film that I would screen alone in my room on a random Saturday night back in the year 2000. And for the record, I thought it was pretty darn good when I took it in. Later, when I was in college, this was a film that I would rent from the local mom and pop shop to screen with some of my fellow dorm rats, and the results were resounding, yeah, that was decent. Let's go get a pizza. So at least I left having the feeling that I was onto something, and I would at least be able to tell people that it was a fun, historical-ish cannibal movie, one that had a little bit of comedy for it. But, you know, if you're gonna understand anything about the logic behind the film that is ravenous, we really need to first get into, well, a bit of monstrous mythology from the indigenous peoples of North America. So, if we're going to get into this story, we need to first set the table with a bit of Native American folklore about a particularly nasty monster in the popular culture that we Anglo-Americans have referred to as the Wendigo. Although, for the various indigenous peoples, it has over 37 different names. Its origin is derived from common tales that are shared by the Algonquin-speaking peoples of North America who inhabited the East Coast, the Midwest, the Great Lakes region, and the Central regions of both America and Canada, respectively. And that would go on to include the tribes of the Potawatomi, the Ojibwe, the Cree, the Pequot, and the Lenape, amongst others. For them, the Wendigo was painted into several forms. Now, traditionally, the Wendigos were depicted as being tall, taunt-skinned, pale, emaciated figures who had elongated limbs that ended with sharp clawed hands. Their mouths were lined with razor-sharp teeth, ringed by bloody, ragged flesh, a testament to the creature's own insatiable hunger, because they chewed their own lips off, exposing a nightmarish, permanent grin. Wendigos themselves are always preceded by cold. Their chests are said to contain inner hearts that are made of ice. If you were to be near a Wendigo, a miasma of rotting flesh surrounds them, and despite their gaunt appearance, they have incredible strength and speed, with stories of them being able to leap up into the trees, running along the tops of the forest canopies, hiding themselves within blizzards that they create from their own dark magic to stalk and kill their prey. Oh, and by the way, that's another point. The Wendigo are insatiable. 
no matter how much meat it consumes, it will never be full. And in some versions of the myth, it'll continue to grow larger and stronger with every person it consumes until it is the size of a giant. So, how exactly does a Wendigo show up in your neck of the woods? Well, there's three common ways. First, a person has to have an imbalance within themselves, some personal inner turmoil that gives the dark and demonic powers that are the Wendigo a toehold to take over and possess the individual. That, or you just have to be a real greedy bastard in life. Either way, be it inner turmoil or greed, the demonic forces will come and take control of your body during your sleep by getting in through your dreams, and that is how they slowly turn you into becoming one of them. Another way one can become a Wendigo, you kill and eat another human. That gives evil forces another way in. It curses the individual with an insatiable hunger, and slowly their body begins to turn monstrous, and then again, you become a Wendigo. Last and least common, you could be cursed by a dark magic practitioner, and this is again how you would happen to then start to want to crave eating flesh of your neighbors and turn into a wendigo, but again, very, very rare. Very few stories ever have this path. All that said though, culturally, especially when we look through the lens of history and anthropology, the wendigo myth on paper makes a lot of sense. I mean, seriously, look at it this way. Common themes. Winter. Hunger. Greed. These are all things that need to be battled during the very real, harsh conditions of North American winters. Times of great scarcity, limited resources, and honestly, it's just a way to push good social mores of just, hey, don't eat the neighbors across the way. They can help you survive. What is a better most serious way of keeping stupid people from wandering out in the cold? Hey, tell them don't go hunting in the blizzard, there's a monster out there that's going to eat you. That's a real good way to keep people close to the home fires. It's also a real unique way of explaining mental illness as well. Again, these are people that came up with mythology and folklore before we had modern medicine to understand things like schizophrenia or mental illness. This could possibly be a way that you could explain why a person behaved in an odd or certain manner. Again, that is not saying that all people who are considered Wendigos are mentally ill, nor does it say that people who are mentally ill become Wendigos. I'm just saying this is a way of possibly explaining strange behavior in a time that we didn't have proper medicine. Now, something interesting. As Old World French began to establish their fur trade routes through Canada and into what would become America. These traders and their various Jesuit missionaries who followed them, they found a lot in common with the Wendigo myths that they were hearing from the local Native Americans. You see, the French had their own stories. They had the Loup Garou, or as we would say in the parlance of the day, this is the European common domesticated werewolf, equally depicted as a gluttonous killer who can't be reasoned with or stopped, something that keeps locals indoors at night, 
again makes sense. What would you tell people in medieval France? Don't go out at night. Don't go out there. There's killer werewolves that will eat you. Stay home. Stay close. Stay by the fire. Trust your neighbors. Be good. All of this is good, positive folklore. Yeah, negative stories, but positive reinforcement. And this kind of cultural exchange that happened added on new embellishments to the Wendigo myth, right? One more thing that expanded the mythology and let the white folks that were living now on the new continent something else to be afraid of. And it served to spread the story further. Of course, as with all things, when you get new storytellers, the myth takes on new changes and new dimensions. Sometimes the beast would be told to have antlers. Sometimes just antlers on a human head. Other times the creature would be described as being depicted as having a deformed head of a stag. Or, in other cases, just a stag skull. In some tellings, the creature, being demonic, would have ram horns. Or, in rare cases, the Wendigo would take on the features of an owl. Now, over the years, instances of Native Americans who either claim to be affected by the spirit of the Wendigo and thus they've justified killing their own people, that's occurred a handful of times. Likewise, there have been hunters who have gone out in Native areas and have killed their fellow members, saying that they were putting down not a real person, but a Wendigo. That has happened too, again, a handful of times. This is not widespread. This has long-term been attributed to a phenomenon known as Wendigo psychosis, one in which an individual believes that they themselves are transforming into a monster. And that individual, if left alone, will indeed attack, kill, and even eat fellow members of their community. Now, while this is considered to be a strictly cultural-bound syndrome, which means if you were to look this up in the DSM-5, it would describe it as being a limited syndrome, one that is very specific to societies and cultural areas that are localized to specific folks, diagnostic categories that frame coherent meaning from a certain repetitive pattern and troubling set of experiences and observations. There is seldom a one-to-one -one equivalent for any other cultural bound syndrome within the DSM diagnostic entity. That's a real fancy way of saying you're not going to have this happen in, let's say, the Italian community. Nobody is going to suddenly announce that they're taken over by the spirit of the Wendigo. This is a phenomenon that is strictly related to people who are indigenous to North America, First Peoples Nations, Native Americans, Native Canadians. Now, over the years, especially within the late 70s and early 80s, that notion of Wendigo psychosis began to be dismantled by a variety of experts who were keen to point out that this was a bunch of inferences made by white scholars who were misusing native culture and folklore. Basically, they were being very selective within what stories they were choosing to tell to make their diagnosis. And they were using historical reports, mainly with native people's oral traditions, to derive this information, which of course eschews traditional medical professionals being around to see things firsthand. I get it. I understand. It's not ideal conditions to conduct a survey of possibly real mental illness. I will say though, in the last decade, 
the pendulum has again swung a little bit back the other way, not by any stretch touting the merits of real individuals claiming to have Wendigo psychosis. Indeed, it is most likely that the individuals who were killed for exhibiting such behavior were done so for other reasons. Logical reasons. I... Sadly, this allowed for groups of people to rid folks they didn't like within their society, or it was a good catch-all for people that were mentally ill that were going out of their minds, and thus it was an easy label to put on them. But, while it's true that medically trained individuals were not present to make proper diagnoses, modern scholarship has now acknowledged that the concept itself is not so much different than other well-known yet still not medically recognized, psychosomatic reactions that have been at least observed by people. These are reactions such as Stendhal Syndrome, Jerusalem Syndrome, Paris Syndrome. So who knows, perhaps we're on the verge of having a real breakthrough case that will make headlines and we can finally get some definitive psychological proof that Hey, yeah, someone officially went nuts, they ate a neighbor, they got caught, and we can blame it on being possessed by a winter demonic spirit, or they just simply have Wendigo psychosis. Either way, the Wendigo has really worked its way into modern culture even today. There are numerous pop cultural stories that utilize it as a subject matter. In 1910, Algernon Blackwood's novella, The Wendigo, was published, and it introduced completely new readers to the material and to the concept itself. The story would later be abridged and distilled down to a very quick ghost story, and it would be republished in children's books from the 80s that drove many apparent nuts. I'm talking about Alvin Schwartz's Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. It has a great story about a Wendigo in it. Go see it! It's awesome! Stephen King himself has worked the Wendigo into his own stories. He makes mention of it slightly in Children of the Corn, but in Pet Cemetery, the spirit of the Wendigo looms large over all of the horror that is happening. Marvel Comics has had the Incredible Hulk, Wolverine, and the Canadian superhero team Alpha Flight fight their own versions of the gigantic strong Wendigo on many an occasion. The Wendigo's shown up in TV series. For example, Teen Wolf has had a Wendigo on it. And there have been actual films like The Wendigo, Darkness Falls, and The Retreat. As well as the Wendigo showing up in video games. The game, survival horror game, Until Dawn. You spend the entire game trying to make it through the night while you're being chased by a group of Wendigos. It's awesome, it's violent, it's bloody and disturbing, and kind of freaky. In short, Wendigo lore has been around for a really long time in North America, long before this film was ever conceived, and it looks like it's going to continue to be that way into the future. Let's face it, people love their cannibal monsters. I suppose I should stop talking history and get on with the film itself. But, oh, whoops, look out, here comes another historical tidbit. You see, the story of this week's picture was conceived by author Ted Griffin, who loosely drew upon his inspiration from the story of the Donner Party. That was the disaster that occurred when a group of settlers got snowed in and trapped in the Rockies during the winter of 1847. 
as they took the Oregon Trail and were forced to resort to cannibalism in order to survive. 87 members set out and only 48 members survived. It's an epic and horrifying disaster in the history of white settlement of the American West. During the setup, it was optioned as a story. Fox 2000 Pictures decided that this was going to be a great basis to start this movie on, and they hired Griffin to come on board and pen a full screenplay. And he had been taking advice and really working with getting notes from one English director, Antonia Bird. And she had also been at the time working with her producing partner, actor Robert Carlyle. Now, Carlyle himself had already worked with Bird on his previous films, Priest in 1994 and Face in 1997. And it was thought that she would be actually great to come on and actually direct Griffin's script about this dark historical comedy and bring it to the big screen. Both Griffith and Carlyle had lobbied hard for Bird to be hired by Fox to make this movie. The problem is, the studio had other ideas. They wanted to glom onto some real positive press. They wanted to hire a young up-and-comer from the indie scene. Originally, this film, which was under the working title of Ravenous, was slated to be directed by one Milko Manchevsky, a young director who had scored critical kudos and an independent spirit award for his feature debut, the film Before the Rain, in 1994. To Fox, this had all the potential to be a nice mid-budget picture that would generate some buzz, make them a decent amount of money, and keep things really simple. That is, until the studio micromanaging set in. You see, for days, the cast, who they got to come on board, they were sold on coming on board to work on the picture in the first place that they were getting to work with Manchevsky. So here's what you got. You got your two big name stars, the aforementioned Carlisle. He comes in and he's hot from getting noticed by American audiences for his work as Bigby in Trainspotting. And your other big name was Guy Pierce. He's equally coming in hot off of just starring in Curtis Hansen's adaptation of James Elroy's L.A. Confidential. Now, the rest of the cast who got to come on board, they were really excited to work with Manchevsky as well. And they're solid actors with long resumes. Each, you have Jeffrey Jones, this was before his precipitous fall from grace. You have Jeremy Davies, John Spencer, a pre-band of brothers Neil McDonough, Stephen Spinella, and David Arquette. You got a film that is being set up to have a nice, reasonable budget of $12 million, and filming has been scouted and will take place in the Tatra Mountains, which will lie right along the border of Poland and Slovakia. It's going to act as a substitute for the American Rockies, which in theory will lower production costs and make everybody happy. The only other place they need to film is in Mexico, where they're actually going to film in Durango, but that will be four shots that take place in Mexico, and they can do those later. Easy, right? Production gets slated to start in February of 1998, and in theory it's going to last through April of that year. In reality, it's going to bring a host of problems for the cast and the crew. 
some of which were needlessly caused by the studio, and others were caused by forces beyond anyone's control, good old Mother Nature. Manchevsky was attempting to negotiate new storyboarded scenes and work them into the shooting schedule, while he was still getting pushback from Fox, who wanted him to constantly check in with them as well as send them dailies for review. Plus, the studio would keep sending cast and crew to the director that he did not hire himself. That was a great way to piss off a talented young man who they had hired because he was such a visionary. All they did was their best to undermine him and keep him from doing the very thing they hired him for. Honestly, in hindsight, the decisions that Fox made were actually head-scratchers. If you didn't want to go along with Manchevsky, if you thought he was too much of a loose cannon, why did you hire him to begin with? The logic given on his departure would have been chalked up to difficult working relationship, and then further questions would be asked. The studio would basically cover its ass and would say Manchevsky was way behind schedule and he was over budget. But when the director was relieved of his duties, it was relieved only after two weeks of shooting had started, and all of the delays that were made to the schedule were caused by the studio themselves, demanding that he constantly meet with them, which would slow down his ability to request for funding and make the film in the first place. They shot themselves in the foot and blamed everyone else. Now, try as they might, the cast members lobbied to keep Manchevsky on the project. But it just wouldn't work out. The die had been cast. So understandably, the director himself wasn't keen on working with all these people who were undermining his every move. Fox reps would end up showing up into Slovakia about three weeks in, right at the end of February, and they showed up with director Raja Gosnell, who at the time his claim to fame was he was the editor on Home Alone 2, and he had just come off of directing the disastrous Home Alone 3. Really great stuff. In an act of solidarity, the cast and mass refused to go on with any further shooting until this could get resolved. They had signed up to work with Manchevsky because they respected him. And if they weren't going to be able to have him on the project, fine, they understand. But this wasn't going to continue on with some corporate stooge. They would not work with Gosnell. Robert Carlyle began to demand that the studio hire Antonia Bird, who he had wanted in the first place. When the initial demands went to the studio to hire Bird, they just turned a blind eye to it and pretended they didn't hear it. So Carlisle made it very clear, hire Bird or I'm done. Fellow cast members actually backed his play, with all of them agreeing if they don't get what they want, they're gonna walk. Jones, who, while he agreed with everything was going on, was kind of acting as an informal negotiator between the parties. Jones would later go on to recount that he was able to convince Carlisle to stay on the project at least through negotiations instead of leaving outright, doing so by agreeing to have a smoke with the actor. I'll elaborate. 
Carlisle at the time knew that Jeffrey Jones was attempting to give up the habit, so it was a little bit of give on both of their parts. Carlisle had mischievously said, I will stay and I will talk if you have a cigarette with me. And to his credit, Jones basically needed that cigarette. He said, sure, I'll sit and smoke with you. And he was able to calm all sides. He had a cigarette with Carlisle, cooler heads prevailed, and Fox would eventually go on and cave, giving in to the actor's collective demands. And Antonia Bird found herself hired and suddenly helming production on a film that was listed as being over budget, behind schedule, and was needing to be shot in a foreign country, all while still being micromanaged by a very uppity studio. Bird came on board with only one week's worth of prep to get a film rolling again. Remember how I mentioned, though, that there were other factors, like the weather? You see, the winter of 1998 was one of the warmest winters on record in Europe in over 200 years. And yet here they are, in the mountains, trying to make a film about being caught snowbound in the Rockies, and there is no snow to be found. Cast members who had all packed and had dressed to be ready for cold weather filming found that they were now sweating on camera in unseasonably warm airs of March. Production had to go into parts of Slovakia and parts of the Czech Republic and buy up all of the fiber-based pillows they could get their hands on and proceed to cut them up, allowing the set folks to dress everything with the appearance of fake snow that was all fiber-based. It would only be in the last few days of shooting that the weather finally turned cooperative and actual snow fell allowing for Bird and the rest of the cast to get some decent shots of the men dealing with the elements as they had expected. For her part, Bird was a trooper, but she found working with Fox to be just awful. And she would voice to any who cared to listen to her that she absolutely did not blame Manchevsky for all of the difficulties that he faced on the film. She agreed with him and put the blame squarely back on the studio for their further micromanagement and interference. After the film was even completed, the studio went in and recut the film to their own liking, keeping Bird's vision out of it and adding in a bunch of previously omitted sequences, which would include voiceover narration and alternate shots. So what you have here is finally a Frankenstein that is the result of two very gifted directors being squeezed out by a studio who thought they knew better and wanted to make a quick profit. In spite of all of this meddling, what you still have here is a very interesting film with some really great performances. But, geez, folks, you've really listened to my prattling long enough. What do you say we get to that trailer? Something he never imagined. 
We have a great sense of camaraderie here at Fort Spencer. <laughs> this Indian scout told me a curious story. Wendigo. It's an old Indian myth from the north. Man eats the flesh of another. He absorbs the other man's strength. Now, one man must choose between others. Between having dinner and being dinner. I'm going to kill him. Robert Carlyle. He was tough, but then a uh, good soldier ought to be. Jeffrey Jones. Me, uh, I bring you into the fold. Tom. David Arquette. <laughs> There's no guilt. I gotta eat. It's tough making friends. Eat to live. Don't live to eat. While the Mexican-American War is still raging, on the field of battle, the second lieutenant, John Boyd, as played by Guy Pearce, loses his nerve, and in a panic, rather than continue to fight, he fakes being killed and falls to the ground, as his unit is killed en masse around him. As his body is tossed onto a cart to be hauled off with the corpses of his fellow troops, he is horrified to see the bloodied faces of his former comrades. He is, subsequently, buried behind enemy lines in a pile of bodies of commanding officers. All while playing dead, their blood runs into his own face and down his throat. He eventually finds the strength to rally himself, acknowledging that something indeed has changed for him and in a rage, he manages to snap the neck of one of the Mexican sentries, and he's able to hold others at gunpoint, capturing an entire command post and holding it until U.S. forces can arrive and take over. Boyd finds himself being promoted to a captain for his victory and his heroism, but at a luncheon to celebrate his promotion, Boyd rather publicly falls ill watching the men around him eating very rare steaks, flashing to thoughts of his fellow dying men bleeding around him. He ends up confessing to his superior, General Slauson, as played by John Spencer, who is indeed disgusted with him, but he needs to have things remain the way they are to save face. As punishment, Boyd ends up being reassigned to the far-flung post of Fort Spencer, which is nestled high in the Sierra Nevada mountains in California territory. He is then escorted to the fort by Martha, as played by Sheila Toussaint, who along with her brother George, as played by Joseph Running Fox, are the two native scouts who serve the garrison there. He is first introduced to the affable Colonel Hart, as played by Jeffrey Jones, who likes the remoteness of the position, and it'll, as it allows him the time to read and study in peace. And he fills Boyd in with the kind of place that he's in and the sort of men he's actually getting to serve with. 
So, Fort Spencer. Uh, the Spanish built this place as a mission. We inherited her. Now we're a way station for Western travelers on their way through the Nevadas. We don't get much traffic through these parts in the winter, so we maintain only a skeleton company that consists of Private Toffler, who's our personal emissary from the Lord, Major Knox, who never met a bottle he didn't like, Private Reich, he's our soldier. I'd steer clear of him. And Martha, you've met. I bet you didn't get a word out of her. And uh, George, her brother. They're both locals. They sort of came with the place. <laughs> and then there's uh, Private Cleves. The over-medicated Private Cleves. And you and I make eight. Cleves cooks. Knox used to be a veterinarian, so he plays doctor. My advice to you is, don't get sick. I tell you don't eat, but then most of us have to. So with your promotion, you'd be number three in command. All of this to Boyd seems incredulous. You have Knox, as played by Steven Spinella, who's always drinking. Reich, as played by Neil McDonough, who's a rage-filled man. Toffler, as played by Jeremy Davies, who's always in prayer. And Cleves, as played by David Arquette, who's either getting high or, in some fashion, eating. As he walks about the fort and tries to take the situation that he now finds himself in, as he looks out across the snow-covered mountains, Boyd reflects back on his actions and how he is ashamed of himself. That evening, Colonel Hart invites Boyd to join him for a drink. Knox has already passed out, so they just steal his bourbon from him. And while the men are talking, Boyd ends up seeing a gaunt and frightening figure glimpsing through the window on them. They run outside to investigate, and they find the man collapsed in the snow. After reviving him in a tub of hot water and letting him sleep, Boyd notes that while the man has no marks on himself, he does have a large number of bloody rags on his person. When he wakes the next morning, they learn his name is Colhoun, and he's played by Robert Carlyle. He shares a disturbing saga about how he's been out in the wilderness for the last three months, led into a tragedy by a man named Colonel Ives. The most disastrous guy. He professed to know a new, shorter route through the Nevadas. Quite a route that was. Longer than the known one. We worked very, very hard. By the time of the first snowfall, we were still a hundred miles from this place. That was November. Proceeding in the snow was futile. We took shelter in a cave. Decided to wait until the storm had passed. The storm did not pass. The trail soon became impossible. We had run out of food. We ate the oxen, all the horses, even my own dog. And that lasted us about a month. After that, we turned to our belts, shoes, any 
roots we could dig up, but you know, there's no real nourishment in that. We remained famished. The day that Jones died, I was out collecting wood. He had expired from malnourishment. And when I returned, the others were cooking his legs for dinner. Oh. stopped it had I been there. I don't know. But I must say, when I stepped inside that cave, the smell of meat cooking During his disastrous retelling of a lost wagon train, Colonel Ives, and cannibalism, George becomes increasingly more agitated with Colquhoun, eyeing him with suspicion and horror as he shares his tale. Colquhoun, of course, blames everything on Colonel Ives for getting out of hand. He claims to have fled the scene after the colonel began systematically killing and eating other members of the party noting that he thinks that Mrs. McCready is still living, at least at the moment. Galvanized at the thought of rescuing a survivor, Colonel Hart rallies his men to form a rescue party to go out and save her, as well as arresting Ives. But George attempts to stop the colonel, telling him about the spirit of the Wendigo, warning the men that those who consume the bodies of their supposed enemies will flourish and take strength, but will also become demonically possessed and insatiably crave the flesh of other humans. Hart acknowledges George's fears, but still takes four of the men with him, Boyd, Reich, Toffler, and George, and he leaves Knox behind to wait for Martha and Cleves, who are returning from a supply run. Mr. Colquhoun insists upon coming, feeling responsible for abandoning Mrs. McCready in fear and insisting that he can help them find the cave that they were sheltering in. Together, all of the men start on what they feel will be a three to four days march into the mountains. Along the way, Boyd ends up questioning Colquhoun about how he felt after eating another man, if he felt physically changed, stronger, something which Calhoun quietly agrees to, noting that he did feel a certain virility from all of it. While they are breaking, Toffler ends up finding a human bone in the snow, and in his excitement, he ends up falling down the mountainside, sustaining a painful yet not life-threatening wound on his side. That night, in the shared tent, the men end up being awakened in the dark by Toffler screaming, and as the lamps are lit, Colquhoun finds himself backed into a corner, fresh blood upon his lips, and Toffler makes an accusation that does not go lightly. Wake up! Wake up! Wake up! Oh, 
What's the matter? Topper's wounds. Mr. Cajon? Yes. You come outside. Outside? You can sleep outside. Boy, you too. Stay there. Sick man outside! True to nature, Reich wants to kill Calhoun, but Hart accepts the man's explanation that it was just a nightmare. Especially when Calhoun willingly offers to allow himself to be restrained for everyone else's peace of mind. As they arrive at the cave the next morning, Boyd and Reich are made to investigate the inner workings. Inside, they find a nightmare of five skeletons hanging, along with evidence that would suggest that Colhoun himself is really just a maddened Colonel Ives. Ives ate all of the party members and took Colhoun's identity as a ruse. They exit the cave to discover that a crazed Colhoun slash Ives has murdered George Toffler and has mortally wounded Colonel Hart, which forces Boyd and Reich to try to hunt the madman up the mountainside. They do find him a hard target to pin down, his bloody grinning face leering at them from behind many a tree, with the innate ability to move at superhuman speeds, leaping to incredible heights, and eventually getting between the two of the men, knifing Reich and hurtling him over the cliffside, before taking a bullet from Boyd's rifle, which knocks him off his feet. To Boyd's horror, though, Colhoun gets up as if nothing has happened, laughing, he slowly ends up advancing on the distraught soldier. Needing to escape, Boyd opts instead to jump from the cliffside, falling hundreds of feet, surviving only because he slows his fall by striking a series of tree limbs on the way down, breaking his own leg upon impact. He ends up in a pit with an almost dead Reich, who haphazardly claws at Boyd before expiring. Exhausted and starving, after a day or two passes, Boyd, in desperation, begins to consume Reich, and, subsequently, heals, managing to then painfully make his way back to the fort alone. To his abject horror, when Boyd arrives at the fort, he finds General Slauson to be waiting for him with cavalry reinforcements, as well as a very clean-cut and polished Colonel Ives leering at the shocked man. Boyd tries to explain. He accuses Calhoun Ives of being a cannibal killer. But Martha and Cleves, being gone on a supply run, and Knox, who had been passed out drunk during the entire kerfuffle, none of them can back up his story, and Slauson doesn't believe him. They send cavalry members out to investigate the cave and find nothing. With Hart gone, Slauson leaves the fort in the care of Colonel Ives, warning him to watch out for Boyd, since the man, of course, seems crazed. The cavalry pulls out, and that leaves once again an even smaller skeletal crew at the fort. Boyd himself continues to have cravings, nightmares, and is always distrustful of Ives, with all of the members of the garrison thinking that it is he who is crazy. 
He takes to carrying a large knife on his person at all times, and eventually Ives takes him aside and gleefully confesses to him how all of this has gone down. You know, not that long ago, I couldn't do that. Could barely take a breath without coughing up a pint of blood. Tuberculosis. That along with uh, fierce headaches. Depression. Suicidal ambition. I was in pretty horrible shape. In fact, I was on my way to a sanatorium to convalesce, more likely to die. When en route, this Indian scout told me a curious story. A man eats the flesh of another. He steals his strength. He absorbs the other man's spirit. Well, I just had to try. Consequently, I ate the scout first, and you know, he was absolutely right. I grew stronger. Later, through circumstance, my wagon train grew lost in the Rockies. I've heard this story before. Mm. I ate five men in three months. Tuberculosis. Vanished. Just did the black thoughts. I reached Denver that spring feeling happy and healthy. Did you eat her too? Well, as a matter of fact, you're disgusting. <laughs> Here I am, one year later, feeling more alive than ever before. And that's what surprises me about you, Boyd. You've tasted it. Felt its power. Yet you're resisting. Why? Because it's wrong. Ah! Morality. The last bastion of a coward. Ives does bait Boyd into slashing at him with a knife, and then he has him arrested and chained, which subsequently reveals that someone in the dark has killed Cleves, a death which is blamed, of course, on a deranged Boyd. Martha is deeply saddened, and she travels on to San Miguel by foot to report what has happened after all of the horses are equally found to be slaughtered. Knox himself, though, is killed by a mysterious figure, who is then revealed to be Colonel Hart, very much alive. Hart himself was saved by Ives, feeding him the flesh of his companions. He's come back and he's been in the shadows and on hand, killing both Cleves and Knox, doing the dirty work for Ives. Hart himself is now hopelessly addicted to being a flesh-eater, and wants Boyd to join them. Hello, Boyd. I hated doing that. Oh, I told you my regiment had certain curative powers, Boyd. Get him up in the rat. Legs still hurt? Doesn't have to, you know. 
You kill Cleves. And the horses. What happened to you? I thought I was dead. I remember feeling panic as my life slipped away. It was like drowning in darkness and then there was nothing. And then I woke up and Ives was feeding me. By the time I regained my senses, there was no turning back. I feel terrific. So you're going to kill me? No. It's lonely being a cannibal. <laughs> Tough making friends. No, I like you, Boyd. We, uh, want to bring you into the fold. You gotta eat. Ives and Hart work on trying to bring Boyd over to their way of thinking. Their plan is to convert Boyd and then convert General Slauson to get things going, allowing them carte blanche to operate in the mountains. Boyd resists as long as he can, but Ives, eager to have a man make a choice, ends up stabbing him, forcing him to make a real hard decision. Eat the stew that he made out of Knox, or die. Boyd does give in and does eventually eat that Knox stew, but he talks Hart into freeing him, appealing to the man's decency knowing that at his core he's still good. Hart begrudgingly agrees and frees Boyd on the condition that Boyd will kill him so he can avoid this accursed existence. Boyd sadly agrees and does as promised before engaging in a knockdown fight with Ives, each of the men stabbing and wounding each other grievously and yet miraculously healing as they battle. As they grapple, Boyd ends up hurling the two of them into a set bear trap, which ends up crushing the men together. As Ives dies first, he taunts Boyd, telling him that he knows him. He's going to eat Ives, and he's going to become just as strong and carry on with the accursed ways. Boyd instead lays dying, and he gets found by Martha, who comes back and acknowledges that Boyd has killed the real monster and is stopping the Wendigo cycle with his own death. As she closes the door and exits the fort, she lets Boyd die naturally in peace. General Slauson and his aide-de-camp arrive and enter the fort to find it seemingly empty, not yet discovering the bodies of all of the parties involved. As he awaits the news of their whereabouts, Slauson goes over to the fire, and the camera lingers on him sampling some of the fine-smelling stew that is simmering there. Before credits roll. Good God, where do you even begin with this? Well, I'll tell you, for starters, I'm not going to accuse anybody of stealing anything, but if you are fans of the 2015 movie The Revenant, and you come back and you see this film, at least 
you saw The Revenant first and you're now seeing this film for the first time, I bet that cliff jumping scene where Boyd flies off the mountainside and hits every coniferous branch as he goes down, that's going to make you look at least halfways askance at director Alejandro Inaritul. Again, I'm not accusing anybody of ripping anybody off, but clearly he's seen something like this before. Perhaps in this movie? Guy Pierce spends this whole film being unable to eat, especially meat. He's amazing here. He's pale, he's sweating all the time, he's taking on that gaunt appearance. We are to believe that this comes from the accidental ingestion of the blood of his fellow soldiers when he's playing dead to survive. It revitalizes him, although it makes him crave the blood of his fellow men, and his general queasiness the entire film is his desire not to give in to feelings that he's experiencing. Twice he gives in to these cannibalistic urges, both feeding on Reich to live and to heal his wounds when he's stuck in a pit, and then later when Ives mortally wounds him to convince him to eat a stew made of Nox. In both of these instances, it's his decision that is made with pain, and it is not something that he takes lightly. He doesn't wish to become a killer like Ives, and he doesn't want to be misled like Colonel Hart. He's just a man that wants his humanity restored. And in truth, the way Guy Pierce plays him, he's both a very tragic and selfless character. With the character itself finally having the courage to stop something that they know to be so morally and environmentally wrong. For his part, Robert Carlyle is perfect. Colquhoun and Ives are natural seducers. They've experienced power that comes from consuming others, and they're clearly now addicted to murdering and eating fellow people, becoming more and more monstrous in the process. But there's something else here, and it's not just the need to support him. And it's not just the marvelous metaphor that this movie sets up, showing that the United States at the time, which is ridiculously hungry for more land than it actually needs, especially with its direct ties to how foreign policy was back in the day, are operating. No, it's something else. Something hard to put one's finger on. Manifest Destiny Westward Expansion You know, come April And we'll all start again Thousands of gold hungry Americans will travel over those mountains On the way to new lives Passing right through We won't kill indiscriminately. No. Selectively. Good God. We don't want to break up families. People are not stupid, Ives. Really? You'll get caught. Well, if it's just the two of us. 
jolly old heart and I. You see, that's why we need others. You, for one. General Slauson. Of course, with no wish to recruit everyone, we have enough mouths to feed as it is. <laughs> we just need a home. And this country is seeking to be whole. Stretching out its arms and consuming all it can. And we merely follow. Not me. You know, it's not courage to resist me, Boyd. It's courage to accept me. I mean, you're already one of us. Nah, there's a subtext here. Ives wants to consume Boyd in more than one way. Sure, he doesn't get with the program, they will eventually kill and eat him, but Ives wants Boyd's soul. He wants a partner in crime permanently. Somebody to share that monstrous lifestyle with. Hart, they turned him for practical reasons. But the way that Carlisle plays Ives here, he's a man that is actually obsessed with Boyd. A man with clear undertones that he wants Boyd to be his and his alone. So you can read this as homoerotic subtext, or you can read this as straight up out there context if you're more evolved. Ives has it bad for Boyd, and Boyd is seemingly aware of this fact, and he is terrified by it. Likewise, I would be remiss to say if I didn't give Jeffrey Jones props. He is truly amazing here. Now, like many in Hollywood who have fallen from grace due to their various personal actions, I'm going to tell you now, this does not mean we have to throw their work out. This is a great story that is acted by a talented cast and has amazing performances. That's how this movie's going to stay for me. Jones can very well be a monster in his private life. And that's also true. And that's going to be his penance that he has to pay. It's his cross to bear. It's something that has to happen and that people have to reconcile. But I do think it's important that we separate people from art. And that's what I'm attempting to do here. This is a great movie. I'm not going to pretend I didn't like it just because I know Jeffrey Jones himself has done some awful things. Heart, as Jones plays him, is a truly tragic and lovable character. He's clearly a man that's not cut out for the military. He's a man who's in over his head with this command, a man who would much rather just be hanging out somewhere remote with all of his books. He likes eating his walnuts, he sips on bourbon, and he reads and he waits for retirement to come so he can really do the exact same thing he's doing here now, just in a place that's a little more comfortable and a little less frozen. He's good-natured, he wants what's best for his men, but he doesn't want to die. Hence, when he's turned, he freely admits it. He 
he's lonely. He doesn't want to be a cannibal monster by himself. And that's why he wants to be with some like-minded people like Boyd to have him fall in with people like him and Ives. You know, if you got friends, it could be fun to live forever if you get to hang with pals. Now, in the original script, Hart was written to be an unrepentant convert. He's a killer. He just goes all the way into the Wendigo lifestyle, and he himself ends up dying a villain. But Jones, after playing the role, ended up approaching director Bird and specifically asked if they could get author Griffith to rewrite the script to allow him to have a more noble and tragic death. Jones himself said he got to know the character, and he felt that, yeah, in the process of dying, Hart does get over and he's seduced into this lifestyle. But as he talks to Boyd, Boyd is able to convince Hart that there is good in his core and that he himself is a caring man. And as he feels guilt over his actions, he finds himself swayed. All my books are gone. I'll miss them. Plato, Aristotle. For two millennia struggling with the nature of man, the ideal society, morality, boil it down. It's the same issues we can't solve today. Happiness and how to achieve it. Aristotle sought truth, Colonel, not happiness. And the truth? <laughs> I led my whole life according to what I thought was right and true, and look where it got me. Fort Spencer. Thus, Jones is able to, with Bird and Griffith's blessing to have Hart sacrifice himself and let Boyd go free, which of course completes the character arc for Hart and allows him to have a bit of redemption before he goes on to meet a violent end. To that end itself, all of the soldiers here indeed are great. Their various idiosyncrasies making them both the bottom of the barrel as military members, but marvelous human beings to spend time with and observe. They all cope with their being posted in the middle of nowhere differently. 
truly. I mean, Knox drowns himself in just oceans of booze. Reich rages on and uses the elements as being stuck on a mountain to continually test himself. Toffler writes hymns and just keeps practicing his faith, even though the rest of them have no interest in it. And Cleves, he fights off the boredom by smoking loco weed and ingesting massive amounts of peyote with his native friends when he's not prepping food that he's going to cook for the entire garrison. All of this is done in an effort to kill the drudgery of being locked in a snowbound hideaway day in, day out for these men. So I can hear you out there right now. Chris, how was this film received? I'll be honest with you, terribly. Ravenous was a wide release on March 19th, 1999, and it went up opening weekend against Clint Eastwood's True Crime, the remake of The King and I, and the rom-com Forces of Nature. Critics themselves were rather brutal, unsure of how to take this film in, both because of its comedic turns, because of the historical nature of the uh, plot itself, and because of all the violence that came along with having a movie about cannibals. They were quick to hammer it. Entertainment Weekly writer Doug Broad commented that it was just trying to be all things to all people, and he gave it a C-plus for its efforts. Todd McCarthy of Variety did speak very highly of the cliffside stunt sequence, but he was rather dismissive of the film in general, stating that Ravenous is a largely unappetizing stew, enlivened at times by the struggle of its characters to be or not to be cannibals. He did float that most people may find it more tantalizing to check the film out further down the line, waiting for it to come out on video. Roger Ebert, favorite punching bag of mind, was at least far more kind to it. He gave the movie 3 out of 4 stars, and while he noted that it wouldn't be a film for everyone, it was the kind of horror movie where you got to savor the texture of the filmmaking, even when the story strays into shapeless gore. Well, I will say I'm glad he was mostly positive. I must argue that for a film about eating folks, if you look back on this, especially now some 20 plus years down the line, it's not actually a movie I would consider to be very gory. Yeah, there's blood here. There's also some grappling and some stabbing with knives, but not to the level you would find with an actual horror slasher of the day, especially towards the late 90s in the post-Scream era, where everybody and their mother was trying to make horror very bloody all over again. No, in reality, what I think it is, it's the context that throws people off here. You got a film that in no uncertain terms is truly about cannibalism, and that seems to heighten the yuck factor for a lot of audience members, especially some of those norms who are out there who don't regularly indulge in the genre of horror to begin with. Still, all that said, audiences stayed away. 
Within two weeks of opening, Ravenous was yanked from over 1,000 theaters nationwide. And with March of 1999 closing out with a little movie called The Matrix, truly, it wasn't missed. At the end of its theatrical run, Ravenous had only grossed a little more than $2 million at the box office, nowhere near making up its $12 million production budget. Director Bird would go on to not make another feature film as a director again. She had swapped over to producing, or she had at least directed short programs for the small screen, but she would not get to helm a feature film. Sadly, Bird passed away in 2013 at the age of 62 from complications brought on by thyroid cancer. And more's the pity, as when you look at this film now, it's gorgeous. And knowing all of the crap that the studio put her through, walking her into a mess that was not at all her own making, this is what we get to see still? Man, imagine what she could have accomplished had she worked with people that truly wanted to be with her, support her, and backed her. Still, Ravenous itself was relegated to the video store shelves as a rental, and a curious thing happened. People began to see it. Over the next decade, Ravenous, with its dark comedy, its great acting, it would become a cult film gaining loyal viewers and earning write-ups in various entertainment circles. Showing a newfound regard for the film and how it had changed, 15 years after its initial release, Entertainment Weekly, the same folks who had downgraded it, who didn't find it to be a hot ticket at the time, they would go on to extol its virtues, with reviewer Joel McGovern giving the movie an A rating, telling viewers, this time in retrospect, that in an age of fast food horror films, Ravenous is that rare and well-seasoned meal that leaves you hungry for more. Go on, eat it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see what you did there. I see you. Look, I'm not going to tell you that Ravenous is going to change your life, and it's not going to send you somewhere that's profound. The opening, especially with the studio interference, is rather ham-fisted by including those two quotes, one from Nietzsche and one from an anonymous person just saying, eat me. The comedy that it tries with those quotes in the beginning, that's indeed ridiculous. But it's a very, very well-crafted movie. It has some fine performances from a great cast of actors, and it really does work well as a social and historical satire on multiple levels. And that makes it better than the average cult horror comedy in this man's opinion. And it can be enjoyed by a larger audience who is looking for something that would be both entertaining and unique. So there you go. That's what I think of Ravenous. The version of Ravenous screened here at the LSCE was the 2014 multi-format Blu-ray put out by the good folks at Scream Factory. This version comes with both the DVD and Blu-ray discs of the film, and that gives you the following. You get the film on 
two different versions, you get commentary tracks from director Bird, composer Damon Albarn, Ted Griffin the writer, Robert Carlyle and Jeffrey Jones, as well as deleted scenes, TV spots, theatrical trailers, still galleries, and making of featurettes with memories and long-form interviews from Jeffrey Jones. In short, you get a lot of bang for your buck here, and all of this could be yours today if you go to Amazon.com right now and find it for the low price of $10.19, which I would say is honestly a steal. Now, remember folks, we don't get anything here at the LSCE for telling you where you purchase your films. We just feel it's important that in this day and age, people continue to support physical media. So that these fine companies who own the rights to these films, we all know and love, will continue to release the content that we are seeking out. And at the end of the day, isn't that what you really want? More of that stuff that you love? Besides, Ravenous is a marvelous little cult film that has amazing performances with a compelling story. So I would argue you'd be crazy to pass up a deal like this. What are you waiting for? Get out there and get yourself a copy of Ravenous today. So that's going to wrap things up here for this episode of I Saw It on Linden Street. Thank you so much for joining us. If you still can't get enough of having old Chris in your ears, well, I'll tell you, I was lucky enough to have sat down with the Video Rama podcast gang, and we got to discuss a marvelous little bit of 80s reality bending and Lovecraft-inspired horror with its offering of From Beyond, and that is now available for you to take in wherever you listen to your podcasts on. So, if you'd like to prove that I do indeed have a face for podcasting, you can check the entire online chat out right now on YouTube, or you can download it through Apple Podcasts. Stop by the website for the links today. And if you like what we're doing here, that would be the LSCE Dachshunds and myself, please consider giving us a favorable review on Apple Podcasts, and please hit that subscribe button. We would oh so appreciate it or just do that wherever you're listening to us on you want to leave us a fun review hell i'll read it here and give you a shout out on the show just consider it my way of saying thank you and recognizing our love of cinema please swing by and check out our website that would be the lscep.com where we have articles episode links and comics for you to peruse I'm also proud to announce that we've added ourselves onto Amazon Music, although we've been there for a while now. So if you have an account, simply say, Hey Alexa, play I Saw It on Linden Street today. We're also available on Podchaser. That's a podcast database for listeners and creators alike. Find us there. Give us a follow and a review if you could, please. And hey, feel free to do that to any of the lists that we are a part of, just to help give us a boost in those old-school rankings. You see, the more reviews and the increased likes, that affects those marvelous algorithms, and that makes us more searchable. And thus, we can share these films with more people. And of course, you want to do that, don't you? (laughs) Of course you do. As always, if you'd like to get in touch with us, 
ask a question, make a comment, send us wonderful things, please email us at lindenstreetcinemaexperience at gmail.com. If you'd like to be even more personable or you wish to contribute a segment to the sidecar, please send us an audio message by way of Anchor. That's a free and easy app to use. So, until next time, please take care out there. Wash your hands. Wear a mask. Everybody, I beg you, please stay healthy. And remember, life's too short not to live in the past. Take it easy out there, everybody. And now, folks, it's time to say goodnight. We sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Please drive home carefully and come back again soon. Good night. Good night.